Welcome to the Paul Spradley Show, a show dedicated to real strategies from real people practicing real leadership in diverse and inclusive cultures. And now here's your host, CEO of the diversity training firm, the Care-Based Leadership Collaborative, Dr. Paul David Spradley. Well, hey, y'all. Listen, I know that we've well surpassed Dr. King's birthday, but did you know that he received a C in public speaking? Not once, but twice. Literally, he's one of the top 50 orators in the history of the world. And he got a C in public speaking. The lesson there, steady progress is more important than perfection. I'm philosophizing now. Anyway, welcome to the show. My guest today, and I'm already preparing to have him come back because there's, there's no way. This topic is just that good. But my guest is Mr. John Kent. He is the senior pastor of The Simple Way, a, house net, a network of house churches in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Over the course of his career, he served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And from his experiences, he's traveled around the world as a cross-cultural trainer and consultant. And one of the topics that I hope that we get to talk about today is worldview. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's good to be here. <clears throat> yes. What, what is a, a house network? What does that mean? Uh, it's a simple way. It's a house network of churches. What does that mean? Right. Thank, thank you. Um, yeah, we're, we're creating a network of churches. A lot of times people are intimidated today if they haven't explored Christianity or aren't part of, uh, haven't been part of it. Often they're intimidated by the idea of going to a big church. So we're creating a network of small house or storefront churches uh, that strip down a lot of the um, ritual yeah. and, and make things very, very simple, very straightforward, more conversational in approach. And so we have four locations now uh, around the city, and uh, they're led by people that we're equipping and training to uh, have conversations around God's word and life. That's fantastic. And if I happen to be in one of these locations, but I have a hoodie on, would I be allowed to come into your church? You could come dressed any way but naked. Okay. <laughs> I've got some nice pajamas. We'll send okay. <laughs> so um, there's so much I want to dive into because I actually I invited you to my intercultural communications class to talk about your world experiences. And, mm -hmm. and so there's a lot that I want to talk about, and we'll see how much we can get into. But you, you were a missionary mm -hmm. in Papua New Guinea, mm -hmm. which a lot of people listening might not even know where that's at. So <laughs> I didn't either when I was asked to go there. <laughs> where, where, excuse me, where's Papua New Guinea? And what was, your, what was the transition from the United States there like for you? Right. So uh, Papua New Guinea is the world's second largest island. Uh, mm -hmm. It's located between the equator and Australia. Um, and, um, yeah, so, you know, I, my wife and I and our three boys at the time were living in New York City uh, when we had an invitation to go to Papua New Guinea to work among, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, an unreached tribal group, a tribal group that hadn't had contact with Christianity. And so it was in 1989 that uh, we moved there. Uh, 270 miles from the nearest town, 180 miles from the nearest road to move among this very, very, very primitive tribal group. Wow. And so when you were told that you're going to Papua New Guinea, I'm sure you went home with flowers. And how, <laughs> how did you communicate that to your wife? Uh, that, that's a long story. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a, what I consider some significant miracles involved with our invitation to go uh, to Papua New Guinea. Maybe that's a, a story for another time. But uh, when, I, when I told my wife, you know, I got off of this phone call, and I said, you're never going to believe what just happened. Uh, she said, actually, I think I do. Oh. And uh, she had al already been under a sense of conviction 
conviction that God was inviting us to go to Papua New Guinea. That's a weird conviction, right? It's like, a weird, or actually I'm in to New go York. as missionaries. We'll say to go as missionaries, not to New Guinea. Wow. Um, that is very specific it's and It's a awesome. very powerful story. Wow. So you're, you're in Papua New Guinea, mm -hmm. and uh, you were called to do this work, and you transitioned there. And, mm -hmm. and do you have children at the time? Yeah, we had three boys when we arrived there. They were five, three, and 18 months at the time we arrived okay. uh, in this you know, very remote jungle location. So you're living in the jungle. Mm -hmm. um, had you been, are you aware of the weather conditions like <laughs> in Papua New Guinea before you moved there? Uh, uh, well, I knew it was near the equator, but uh, yeah, it was uh, Papua New Guinea where we lived. We were at 80 feet above sea level, 400 miles from the mouth of the river. Mm. Uh, every day, the inside of our house was about 92 degrees, 365 days of the year. <laughs> 20 feet of rain a year fell. Wow. So and it was very hot yeah. and very, very humid. And no air conditioning and because no it's a primitive community, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So what was the beginning of your time like there? Mm -hmm. uh, and what was your mindset maybe around the work that you were called to do? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so um, when I went to Papua New Guinea, I was a typical American Christian. We'll, we'll just say that. Um, you know, we were invited to go there. Uh, we were part of a brand new mission agency. Uh, it, it began on a lot of romantic idealism about what it meant to go. And so, you know, uh, we were the second missionary to join the organization. And we were basically, they were, were told, you know, go over to Papua New Guinea, learn the language, learn the culture, share Jesus, plant churches, and come back in about six years. Wow. And, uh, simple. We, yeah, very simple. Yeah. And we discovered it wasn't quite that easy. Wow. Uh, and several things took us down that, that path. Uh, you know, first of all, when, when I first arrived, uh, shortly after I arrived, and we hadn't quite moved out to the deep jungle yet, I was given a curriculum, uh, a teaching curriculum that, that they said was being used successfully around the rest of the island. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was a very large number of people that were baptized and joined our church, about 4,500 people in a single baptism. Wow. And I said, well, if it isn't broke, don't fix it, right? right? And so I looked at this curriculum and it was, it was you know, a 52 lesson, 52 lessons, topical, analytical, very similar to something I might use in the States. And without effective training, which we didn't receive before we went, I said, well, we'll just use this, and went out and began using it. And, um, you know, after, after a couple of years, yeah, people did respond. Uh, but every time they faced real-life crisis, Paul, what I began to notice two, three years into it, you know, is that as they faced real-life crisis, they would always revert to tribal animism. They were animists living in fear and manipulation of spiritual forces. That's their core worldview, their core picture of how the world operated. And every time they faced real-life crisis, they would revert to that. Mm. And it really began to challenge me and... Um, set me on a long journey of, of thinking about culture and worldview and, uh, and realizing that, that I simply couldn't uh, impose Western ways of doing things uh, in a non-Western situation. Well, that is a heavy statement. So uh, this, I, I f and I also think that that had to take a lot to get there mentally, right? Because mm -hmm. you've been taught that I'm gonna take this Western mm -hmm framework, model, model mm -hmm. and it fits here, it's mm -hmm. worked, mm -hmm. uh, I've seen it, that's what I've been taught, and mm -hmm. so um, that had to be a pretty unique realization 
Yeah, so, so what happened to me is, you know, as people began, um, for want of a better word, choosing against Christianity and res responding in animistic ways, uh, you know, I realized that what had happened is, is that as I had taught them, uh, that they had, em they had embraced the behaviors of Christianity, but underneath was an unchanged core worldview, mm -hmm. that the core values and beliefs had remained unchanged. They just had adopted practices, but deeply hadn't, hadn't altered their way of seeing and interacting with the world. And so every time crisis happened, they would do what was actually most natural and what seemed to them to feel like the best thing to do. Which was what? What was, the, what was that mm -hmm. practice like for them? So, so in the animistic world that, that I was in for eight years there in Papua New Guinea, uh, people, uh, often Westerners will describe them as worshiping spirits. It's, it's actually quite rare. Uh, animists live in fear and manipulation of spirits who, uh, if, the, if people don't obey the rules and norms and mores of the culture, those spirits get involved by bringing sickness and death and catastrophe. Uh, into their lives. And so when, when people would face a crisis like a death or a sickness or some other uh, event, uh, the immediate assumption was these are the spirits that are involved bringing this on. And so then they would resort to the practices necessary to pu push, keep those spirits at bay. And those practices might look like? Uh, you know, various rituals uh, in New Guinea. It, it looks like, you know, often going to the jungle and getting a certain uh, number of leaves, certain kinds of leaves or roots, and, and uh, chewing, them, chewing them and spitting them and going through a, you know, a chant uh, as they seek the spirit that they believe is most involved in this catastrophe to, uh, to cause that spirit to feel better and, and back off. Okay. So in the animistic world, spirits are only involved in your life uh, whenever you do something wrong. And so you found that you would have these conversations, you would teach, and people would, they would, they would buy into the, the Western way that you mm -hmm. presented this model. But then when crisis would come, they would revert back to what they knew. And so this started a process within you that said, maybe, there's, maybe this isn't the way that I need to be connecting mm -hmm. uh, with these people. What happened next? Yeah, so uh, there, there's, a, there's a story that I, that I tell, and I think this is a good time to tell it. Um, so shortly after our arrival, um, as far as anyone knew, the Iwam were untouched by, by Christianity. And, and through a series of what I call very providential circumstances, even before we moved out there, I actually connected with a man uh, hundreds of miles from the Iwam tribal group uh, who was from that tribe. Wow. <laughs> And, and he, had actually, he, he had actually come out of the jungle deeply immersed in animism. He'd actually become a Christian. Uh, and, and I met him on a riverbank hundreds of miles from where he, where he actually lived. And uh, we connected, and he wanted me to come out to be with his people. And so he went and prepared the way for my arrival. We eventually moved out there, my wife and my children. We moved out. And, and from the minute we arrived, or the moment we arrived, his name was Ben. Uh, ben just deeply attached himself to me because he, he wanted to be able to share Jesus in ways that made sense to the culture. And he was really struggling with that. His understanding of Christianity was very, 
a veneer also. And, and so even though we were separated by a vast chasm of language and culture, uh, you know, we were kind of one as brothers in, in Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and so a few months after we arrived there, though, Ben got very, very sick. And we thought he had malaria. We began treating him for that. Eventually, uh, on my first trip back to civilization, uh, to the provincial headquarters, uh, I took Ben with me. He began bleeding through his rectum. Long story. Uh, a few weeks later, Ben actually dies. Wow. And we received word of that. I'd, I'd sent him to the hospital a second time. And uh, he, he, he had died. And we received word of that via our... our um, only communication with the outside world, which was a two-way radio. And on the day that happened, Paul, I'll never forget the radio coming to life and our mission president saying, John, I've got really bad news. Ben is dead. Mm. And, and it, just, it just broke our, our hearts. You know, my wife and I were standing there just trying to take that in and realized we had to go to the tribal group and tell them that Ben was dead. And, and so we made the, our way off of the little hill that we lived there, down to the riverbank, down to the village where... Ben lived. It was as if they sensed the news before we got there because immediately we were surrounded by hundreds of wailing, screaming, uh, mourning Iwam tribal people. Uh, the only way I can describe it, it, it was like being transported back a thousand years in time. Wow. Uh, just unbelievable, uh, you know, chaos as they, they uh, you know, the women who only wore grass skirts were tearing their skirts off. They were rolling in the mud. His half-brother took an axe and began to whack at his head to show the spirits how sorry he was. And mm -hmm. I stood in the middle of that and just said, God, you know, what in the world are you doing? Uh, how can you allow the one and only Christian among this people to die? And I wept like I've never wept before. Well, eventually, the entire village moved across the river to what I called the morning hut, what they called the morning hut, the large hut. And for the next two months, the entire tribe gathered there. And, and they mourned every day for two months. Wow. <laughs> and every day throughout that crisis, I actually sat in that hut with them. There's a picture that, that shows me surrounded by these tribal elders, uh, you know, as, as they're mourning the loss of this young man. And uh, Paul, it was, it was a huge crisis for me because here I was, a, a Christian missionary who'd gone over, was partnering with the one and only Christian among the Iwam people, right. and, and he's dead, you know. And, and wow. I'm just saying, God, what, what, are you, what is going on here? I, I sat in that hut for two months, day after day after day, while that tribal group sought the spirits, tried to make sense of it, just sat with them. And about two months into it, and and it was, it was a dark time in my heart, in my life. And, you know, I'd gone home, and in the after, late afternoon, I was coming back. I was climbing up the notched log ladder into that hut. Whenever I heard the tribal elders saying, you know, that, that John and Belinda, my wife, you know, they're, they're not missionaries. <laughs> and I said, that's, you know, what more can go wrong? Right. <laughs> you know, but then they went on, and, and they said, you know, they're not missionaries. They are our brother and our sister. Wow. And, and, and Paul, you know, just in reflecting on this, several lessons, you know, I, I've, I've taken away from this moment is that, you know, through the loss of Ben, God did something that likely could have never happened otherwise. I, I've struggled to kind of put that into words. Mm -hmm. But you, I realized that up to that point in time, 
It was not the Ewan people I loved. It was Ben, because he was most like me. You know, even though there was language and cultural differences, we were both Christians, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was Ben that I loved. It was Ben that I cared for. It was Ben that I spent time with. Uh, in the loss of Ben and, and through that process of sitting uh, in that hut for two months, <laughs> day after day after day after day, uh, you know, we became bound to the Iwam people in ways that probably could have never happened otherwise. I began to gain insight into their culture, into their beliefs, into the things that were behind the scenes that I, I would have never seen otherwise. What's the lesson there back here for us in America, mm -hmm. right? Like there's, because there's, there might be three, two or three like lessons, but there were this idea that um, my Western self is what's going to connect. Mm -hmm. There was working through that idea mm -hmm. and just being mm -hmm. present with mm -hmm. the people and not saying, this is, you're not supposed to mourn for two months, you're only mm -hmm. supposed to mourn, like, yeah. right? So what are the lessons for the people that are listening right now that are here in the United States mm -hmm. of America that will never interact with the Ewan people, but have interacted with someone who's very different than mm -hmm. them? Yeah, yeah great, great question, thank you. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a term in, in missions we call ethnocentrism, which is the idea that, that most of us perceive our culture as the best, <laughs> right? Yep. And, and we judge all other cultures against that, you know? And so when we're in a context where somebody is behaving or doing or thinking in ways that don't align with our hearts or with our way of thinking and doing and believing, we, we tend to judge that culture or that person negatively because it doesn't fit our worldview, our understanding of, of how to think and behave. And, and, you know, deep in the jungle, just several things hit me uh, that, that spoke to me and it hel has helped me through the years. One of those issues is that as an American, I realized that I tended to treat others as if they're Americans in process. <laughs> Right? Uh, yeah. you know, so when I went there, my, I had these ingrained assumptions in my wow. mind yeah. that, that they should be like me and that they wanted to be like me. Does yeah. that make sense? It very much does, yeah. Right, and so you know, everything I used and all my approaches assumed that they thought like me, even though it was clear they didn't, <laughs> that they used logic like me, even though it was clear they didn't. Uh, uh, but my, my ethnocentrism blocked that out. Uh, my worldview blocked out my capacity to actually see them uh, empathetically wow. or empathically. Powerful. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I, I also began to realize that, you know, a worldview is built on the experiences that we have primarily in childhood. Uh, that's where our deepest beliefs about God, about ourselves, about others always begins to happen. Uh, and that, that experience, the experience, uh, you know, I, I refer to it as episodic memory. Uh, you know, it's memory that's formed through experiences. That's a very deep level of, of experience and can only be overcome by deeper, better experiences or other experiences offset the power of those. So I, I guess going back, you know, I realized that from a self-reflective perspective, I tended to treat others like they were Americans in process mm. and that I had to stop doing that. Um, I realized that my experience in the hut uh, helped me to begin to begin seeing uh, the Iwam people from a different, different perspective. And I, and I 
as I reflected scripturally on that, you know, there's a there's a, an idea in scripture called the incarnation. You know, that, that Jesus incarnated himself. He was God, but he came became human. In John 1.14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and I began to reflect and realize that Jesus spent 30 years learning how to be a Jew before he uttered a single word of public proclamation. Hmm. And during that time, he was actually learning the culture that he was ministering in so that when he did begin to speak, everything he said and did actually made sense to the people he was the, he was serving, and so for me, that that invitation is that if if I'm going to have a meaningful impact on another life, even if it's one other life, that I that I have to make sure that I understand that person, mm. that, that I have to lean into that person, that I have to understand them for who they are, what their deep aches and longings are, before I can attempt to answer questions that they may not even be asking. Does that make sense? It's so heavy, man. It's um, so, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. I, so, I, I, it's so good because like, I think it's a thing that we, tr we fall into, right? And, mm -hmm. and so you'll hear terms like, well, this is my bias, or this is my leaning, mm -hmm. this is just, mm -hmm. and, and people are having a hard time recognizing that when we interact with other folks, we want them mm -hmm. to assimilate or be like us on mm -hmm. some level. So we try to, we frame our interactions mm -hmm. from that perspective. Uh, instead of taking the time. The other thing that was interesting that happened in your story was that you didn't, you weren't saying that you were an advocate of the E1 people. You didn't say that you were their brother or sister. They invited you, they, they mm -hmm. told you. Mm -hmm. It wasn't you saying, hey guys, like I'm here, I'm yeah, your brother and sister. Exactly. You, yeah. you, you were patient and you, you listened and mm -hmm. you were there and mm -hmm. you experienced mm -hmm. and you just sat. Mm -hmm. And when they cried, you cried with mm -hmm. them until they said, mm -hmm. this is our brother, right. this is our sister, mm -hmm. right? And so um, we, we've got, I told you the day was gonna fly by. We've got about three minutes left in the show. I know, <laughs> Are you kidding? we have about three minutes left. I, I wanna, so I'm gonna have to have you come back on. Um, but I want, can you start to wrap up your thoughts around this idea of worldview? Um, if I am listening to this show right now and I'm saying, listen, I, it, what you're saying makes sense. And the way that I interact, if I'm a man, the way that I interact with women, is, is off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If the way that I interact with mm -hmm. people that have less money is not quite aligned with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. A step that I can take today to begin leaning into this process. You know, you talked about having experiences mm -hmm. to change, mm -hmm. you know, my, my, my habit, the mm -hmm. way that I think. Mm -hmm. What might you encourage for someone that's listening? Says, I, I think I want to lean into this. What he's mm -hmm. saying is making sense, mm -hmm. but I don't know where to start. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think it's, it's really critical for all of us to understand that our way is not the only way, right? That we have to become self-reflective. We have to realize that, that who I am is built on, a, on all my past experiences. And, you know, that's okay because that's my experience. But, but if I'm going to have a meaningful interaction with the rest of the world, I have to come to every relationship, uh, to every culture, every other ethnicity. I have to come starting first with the idea that, that if I want to have a meaningful relationship here, I have to earn the right to be heard. I have to earn it. And so that means committing myself to asking questions. It means committing myself to learning, uh, you know, what does it actually look like to have an appropriate 
relationship with women <laughs> who aren't my wife, mm -hmm. right? I had to learn that with my wife. Uh, but what, you know, what's, what's it mean to have appropriate relationships with somebody of another ethnicity? Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, Paul, just driving in that sometimes, you know, as a white man, do I treat black men or black people like they're white people in process? Mm -hmm. does, does that make sense? I have to lay that aside. I, I have to put that aside and say, this is a human being at a human being level. And, and God has something together as, as, we, as we actually learn and grow together. We can create something that's unique and powerful and redemptive in the world. When we're out having these conversations, um, a lot of times people can't get there. Mm -hmm. They can't get to that spit. Mm -hmm. The thing that you just mm -hmm. very, that, that you said that talking to me as a black man, as a white man, mm -hmm. that sometimes you might communicate with me mm -hmm. as if I am a white man. Mm -hmm. um, and so for us, we go, it's a journey mm -hmm. like we, because we can't have that conversation mm -hmm. in because it, there's, there's sometimes shock that happens mm -hmm. on the back end of mm -hmm. like, this is just too much in information, like this is too much. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate the fact that you've been on this journey mm -hmm. and you've continued to um, stay on this journey. Mm -hmm. because one of the things I actually said at the beginning of the show is this idea of steady progress is better than perfection, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. if you had reached this pinnacle Back in, when did you go to Papua New? Uh, way back in 1989. Okay. Was there for t until 1997. 89 was a good year, right? We had the <laughs> the, the colors were good back in the 80s. <laughs> you were there, and this process of 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 how your world began to change mm -hmm. started, mm -hmm. and it might have started before then, but things really started to to, to get mm -hmm. deep mm -hmm. at this point, and they've not stopped mm -hmm. to the point that you and I will have conversations, and you have asked. Is, was that the appropriate thing to say? Mm -hmm. And you've allowed me space to say, mm -hmm. well, no, you could have said it this way. Mm -hmm. People don't, aren't willing to do that, and mm -hmm. I think that that has only come in your space because of the process that mm -hmm. you've been on. Mm -hmm. um, has it been hard? Oh, man. It's been the hardest journey of my life has been the journey of, of, of laying down my perceptions of what is right and appropriate as the only way of seeing and doing things. And it is a journey. There, there's no other way to say it. Worldviews are developed through a lifetime and they only altered over time and experience. That is that needs to be on a t-shirt somewhere or <laughs> that like that was that needs to be on a billboard or a t-shirt because that was that was that was phenomenal. Uh, that was very well said. And just on the other side, you said it's been hard. Has it been worth it? Oh um, absolutely. Uh, I would never turn away from the journey uh, that God has had me on. Mm -hmm. That's our time. Uh, you've been fantastic. If folks want to connect with you or, or come to one of your uh, house church networks, mm -hmm. how can they do that? Yeah, you can reach out to us on Facebook, the Simple Way Church dot, uh, well, the, on the website, simplewaychurch.org, okay. uh, or the Simple Way Church on Facebook. Okay, I will put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has You're been welcome. fantastic. And I will have you back on the show because there's so much more to unpack in this space and I just want to continue the conversation. Thank so, you, thank Paul. You. Thanks yeah. for allowing me to be here. Well, if you like this show, please share it. And if you like what you've been hearing uh, on the show, my team and I would love to host a diversity, inclusion, or bias training for your company. You can go to my website, www.carebaseleadership.org. There are resources there, including a way that you could win $100 for 
a referral. Until next time, remember to make caring for a daily practice. So long.